God, we thank you for life and breath today. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place to sing your praises, to witness the baptism of these who've come to declare publicly their identification and solidarity with you in your death and resurrection. We thank you for the ability to study your word, even, even to comprehend or understand a single solitary thing that the creator of the universe has said is a great gift. But the fact that your spirit works in conjunction with your word to give us insight, to give us clarity, to give us conviction, all of these are a blessing beyond what we can articulate. And so we praise you, we focus our eyes upon you, we invite you, we beg you to come and speak to us to speak in this place, to turn our hearts, to focus us on you, and to conform us to your image, we pray. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. Well, we're picking up in John chapter 5 in our ongoing study called Love and Trouble. If you were with us last week in John chapter 4 at the end, you'll remember that Jesus had gone back to Cana, which is uh, in Galilee, which is sort of his home turf. And uh, when he was there, there was an official who came to him and said, I need you to come with me to Capernaum. I need you to heal my son. He's going to die. And Jesus at that point looked at the man and said, you go, your son will live. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus didn't go with him. And if, if at that point in our study last week you were looking at it and thinking, it seems a little impersonal, a little unkind that Jesus didn't just take the time to go with him to Capernaum, maybe in your mind you were thinking it would have just been more compassionate had Jesus gone instead of sending the man away. But remember that what the writer of John is trying to do is in some ways in these first four chapters to show us the breadth of the way that Jesus interacted with people, men and women, the educated, the uneducated, those who were seen in positions of power in their culture and those who were the powerless, absolutely. In this case now, we see Jesus leaving Cana and going up to Jerusalem for a feast. It doesn't tell us what feast that is, but when he gets there, he, he makes his way to this area, the Pool of Bethesda. There were actually two pools there. Those have been dug up in archaeological digs. You can actually go to Israel and see those if you want. Um, he goes to this place called the Pool of Bethesda where there were all kinds of people with physical handicaps that had gathered because of sort of the, the common mythology that said that the pool would get stirred up by an angel. In fact, if you have a King James Version, uh, you'll notice that there's a verse 4 in the King's James, King James Version that doesn't exist in the ESV or the NIV or the NAB that's omitted, uh, it's not in the earliest and most reliable of our biblical texts. And so in the ESV and others, that verse four has been removed. Um, but it basically, it basically is kind of a marginal note that a transcriber likely wrote that says, the people believed that the pools were stirred up by an angel periodically. And when the pools got stirred up, whoever could get into the water would be healed. And so you've got this place outside of, uh, outside of, of the, the Sheep Gate where all of these people with physical limitations would come and gather, hoping that the water would get stirred up and that they'd be the first one in the water so that a miracle would happen, right? They're gathered in this place. I want you just to imagine for a second the kind of hopelessness and the kind of pain and the, the kind of sorrow and the grief and just sort of the, what, what a gathering like this would look like in the first century, a place where people, even people like the man in the story here, someone who's been sick for 38 years, who's been an invalid for 38 years and has sort of resigned himself to the fact that that's just his identity. His identity is a man who's incapable of walking and incapable of getting into the water himself. And Jesus, heading to Jerusalem, going up for a feast, there's not really any reason why he needed to go to the pools of Bethesda, 
other than the fact that we see the compassion of Jesus on display. If you looked at him last week and said, why didn't Jesus go with this official to meet his son who was sick? I want you to see what we're getting here is a range of the ministry of Jesus, that he does things in different ways at different times, but always for strategic purposes. And here, Jesus makes his way to Bethesda, and there's all of these people who are sick, all of these people who are paralyzed, who are blind, and he makes his way, not to all of them, he doesn't do like a big sort of miracle session, he makes his way to one man in the midst of this hopeless and heartless crowd, and, and he asks the man a question. What we're going to see in our study this morning is sort of a, a beautiful interaction with Jesus, the healing power of Jesus that sort of happens in four movements. And I very rapidly this morning, because of everything else that's happening, we want to sort of move through these four movements and see not only what they declare to us about Jesus, but what they declare to us about ourselves as well. Because even though this story takes place in the first century, and there's a different language, and there's a different culture, and it's a different environment, you know, all of those things feel different, there is so much in this story that is exactly like us today. There's so much in this story that parallels perfectly all of human experience that we don't want to go, well, this is an interesting historical account. We want to be able to look at it and understand how it relates to us. So firstly, let's look here in John chapter 5 in the first few verses. It says, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, verse 1. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This is the first sort of initiation. It's worth noting that this man doesn't reach out to Jesus. In fact, there's no indication in the text that this man knew who Jesus was. There's no indication in the text that this was a man who was going, hey, that's Jesus. He's probably the Messiah. Or that's Jesus, the one who's come to take our sins away. Or that's Jesus who did miracles in other places. In fact, the man doesn't know Jesus' name when it's asked of him later. He's not aware of who Jesus is, so we can't look at the man and say, oh, this is a man who had a ton of faith, or this is an incredible you know, believer or a follower of Christ. This is a man who Jesus initiated with, and that's important, because I think sometimes in our life we sort of assume you know, that God gives to those who reach out to him, or that God is kind to those who prove they're worth it, or that God is, you know, he helps those who help themselves, or whatever other nonsense you might believe. And this text proves irrefutably that God in his grace goes to those who don't even know what they need. He goes in his grace to those who don't know where to find the help they need. He goes in his grace to those who haven't demonstrated faith, who aren't necessarily believers, and he transforms their life in order to provoke in them something greater, a greater sense of belief. The, 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 the grace of God is not necessarily always preceded by the belief of human beings. Jesus goes to this man, and he asks him a really interesting question. It says Jesus knew the man, and he knew that he'd been there a long time. I don't know if that's, you know, Jesus had visited Jerusalem. He'd been to Jerusalem even as a young man. We know at this point Jesus is around 33, 30, you know, he's kind of in his early 30s. Is it possible that on an earlier trip to Jerusalem, that Jesus and his family had passed through this area at Bethesda? And maybe he'd seen this very same man who'd been sick for a long time. As a little kid, maybe he'd been startled by the man's condition. And now he comes back as an adult some 30 years later or, or 25 years later or whatever. Maybe this is someone that he'd seen before. Or maybe this is an ind indication of his sort of supernatural knowledge. But Jesus knew the man. He knew he'd been there for a long time. And he asked him a really interesting question. The question he asked this man who'd been sick for 38 years is, do you want to be healed? 
Do you want to be well? It seems kind of like a question that doesn't need to be asked, doesn't it? Seems like for a man who'd been lying on a mat, you know, intermittently for 38 years, who hadn't been able to find any sort of restoration, who hadn't been able to find any kind of healing, it seems like the question, do you want to be healed, is like a no-brainer. Of course he does. But it's interesting that Jesus asked the question, and it's provocative for us, because I think we also have to ask ourselves the same question. You see, while you might be someone here today who doesn't have these same physical limitations, the reality is that every human being is broken. If not broken in some ways physically, we're all broken spiritually. We're all separated from God because of our brokenness, and we feel it. We feel the hopelessness. We feel the sorrow. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame. We see the breakdown in our society. We see the breakdown in our relationships. We see and know very personally all of our own brokenness. We're intimately aware of it, and we do whatever we can to try and mitigate it, don't we? We do everything we can to try and minimize the effects of our brokenness and our pain, whether it be physical brokenness or emotional brokenness or spiritual brokenness, relational brokenness. We'll do whatever we can to try and change those things. Self-help books, seminars, medication, whatever it takes to try and find some little bit of healing, some little bit of restoration. But like this man at the pool, we're not always very successful. And those things tend to only help for a little bit of time. They tend to never really get at the core of our issue. And so when we look at the text, even though this is something that happened 2,000 years ago in a different language and a different culture, I want you to see right away that it's very relevant to us. That all of us in this place have brokenness of our own and Jesus would ask us this morning the very same question, are you interested in being transformed? Do you want to be healed? And sadly, the reality is that for many people, the answer is I'm just fine, right? I think I'd just sort of like to be left well enough alone. I'm managing, I'm sort of figuring it out. It's funny, my very first job when I was 15 and a half, I got a job working for uh, Farmers Insurance. And I, I, was a, I was one of their phone call people, you know what I'm talking about? You probably got these calls. But uh, every night at about five o'clock, I'd go into the insurance office and my boss would tear out like two pages out of the white pages, which uh, for those of you who don't know, that's uh, from a phone book. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a phone book was an old book that had phone numbers in it. For those of you who don't know what a phone number is, it doesn't matter, we could get down a rabbit hole here. He would tear out two pages of the phone book and he'd leave them on a desk for me and then my job was just to call one after the other, right? And I'd call people during dinner time on purpose, right? So if you ever wonder, do they do this on purpose? Yes, we do. Uh, I'd call people during dinner and when I'd get them on the phone, I'd say, hey, would you be interested in saving hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on your home insurance, right? And uh, interestingly, you would think, like, why wouldn't people want to save hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on their insurance? Turns out, they don't really. They don't. And in fact, some of them are so adamant about not wanting to save money on their home insurance, they tell you with a curse. Uh, and, they, and so I got cussed at a lot, I got yelled at a lot, I got hung up on quite a bit. I was just trying to offer people something I thought they would like, uh, but turns out that I only lasted in that job for about three months, and then I was so kind of beat up as a 15-year-old that I went to work in a movie theater where it just smelled like popcorn and things were better, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> Jesus looks at the man and he says, do you want to be healed? And I think we sort of want to take that on the chin this morning and ask ourselves the same question, because what can happen in our own lives is that sometimes, you know, 38 years is a long time to hurt and a long time to adapt to the pain, a long time to adjust and to settle. I think for many of us, our brokenness just becomes part of our identity. 
We just start to go, well, you know what? I, I just am gossipy sometimes. That's just who I am. Or you know what? I, just, I can be selfish. Or sometimes I get really angry. Or sometimes I'm just really prideful. Or you know what? My addictions or my lust or my affairs or whatever the, whatever the brokenness is that's manifesting in your life, you kind of just over the course of 38 years, you kind of go, well, you know what? I tried to read this book. I tried to go to that seminar. I talked with this pastor. I got this thing going. And it just hasn't changed. And so this is just who I am. And when we read a text like this where the Lord himself looks at someone who's sick and says, do you want to be healed? We go, well, why wouldn't he want to be healed? And yet in our own lives, many of us are content to just be identified with our brokenness. We're content to just sort of lay on our mat for the next 38 years, if you will, right? To just stay in the condition we're in. You, if you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the uh, anonymous programs, you know that the very first step towards recovery is admitting that you have a problem. That you have to admit that there's an issue in your life. And for many of us, after 38 years of brokenness or 78 years or 18 years, we just sort of get to a place where we go, you know what, this is good enough. And we lose all sense of discontent with our current condition. Does that make sense? We just become satisfied and settled in our ongoing fights with our spouses, in our ongoing brokenness in our relationships at work, in our ongoing prejudice and pride, in our ongoing greed and selfishness. We just go, yeah, you know what? I'm comfortable on this particular mat. Jesus looks at the man and says, do you want to be healed? And I hope that each and every one of us this morning would look at our own lives and recognize what our brokenness is, first of all, and then we would, with the man, ask the question, do you, do you want to be different? Do you want to see transformation? Would you like to be restored? The man doesn't actually answer the question, and so in the second movement, it's really interesting what he does instead. He doesn't say, yes, I would like to be healed. He doesn't even say, oh, duh, of course I want to be healed. Jesus says in verse 6, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the man responds to kind of a different question. He says this in verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Remember, here we're getting a, a, a more, you know, like, we're getting a more accurate representation of what people believed about the pool. If you had a King James This Morning Bible translation, it would tell you um, that people believed an angel would stir the pool and the one who could get in. So we're hearing that re represented in his answer. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He gives an excuse for why he hasn't been healed, which is also typical of us. And the two things he points at are both isolation and injustice, Isolation and injustice. He says, well, it's irrelevant whether I want to be healed or not. I don't even know why you're asking me that question. The issue at hand is, I don't have anybody in my life to carry me down in the water. There's this magic pool here, and if I could get into the water, my legs would get fixed, but nobody cares about me enough to carry me down there. Maybe he had somebody 37 years ago, but he doesn't have anybody now. Maybe he's looking at the other sick people around the pool of Bethesda, and he's thinking, look at all these people who've got their family members and their friends to help them get into the water. I got nobody. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And his first response is, that's irrelevant. I don't have anyone in my life who can help me. It's a sense of isolation. Not only that, he says, sometimes when I, when I start to crawl toward the pool, when it starts to bubble, I start to crawl toward the pool and some other jerk cuts me off. It's the same way I talk about LA traffic, right? Some jerk always gets in the pool before me and I can't get in there. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about isolation and he's talking about injustice. 
It's amazing how in our hurt and in our brokenness and in our shame and in our guilt, sometimes we lose sight of even trying to be transformed. We lose sight of whether or not we even, we even were meant to be this way. And instead we start to find all kinds of excuses for why the way we are is, is the way it is. We start to look at the culture around us and we go, well, I wouldn't be so greedy if other people would be more generous. Or I wouldn't be such a gossip if all the people around me weren't so rotten, you know? I wouldn't be so prideful if I wasn't so fantastic, right? We start, we start to find, I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about me, uh, don't laugh. Uh, we start to find all kinds of external excuses for why we're still broken, as opposed to evaluating the question, are you ready to not be broken anymore? And I think when we read a text like this, we have to kind of take a time out, each and every one of us individually, and go forget about what's been done to you, forget about your isolation just for a moment, and ask yourself the most important question. It's not what has been done to you or what hasn't been done to you, but rather, are you content? Are you satisfied with what your life is today? And do you suppose that in that brokenness that that's all God created you for? Do you suppose that this is all he created you for? That in your brokenness, whatever the excuse for it is, that God doesn't want more for you. That your heavenly father doesn't want more for you than you maybe even want for yourself. Is it possible that some of us in this place have become resigned to lying on our mat for 38 years and Jesus would break into that situation and go, no, 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 no. I got, I got a better plan for you. Do you want to be healed? He comes back with his excuses. It's interesting that sometimes our brokenness becomes our identity. Past disappointments and failures sometimes prevent us from having hope. But there's a difference between trusting in community or trusting even in justice or trusting in a magic pool and trusting in the creator of the universe. Let me say that again. If you're hoping to put your trust in community, like the good of mankind to help you out of your brokenness, you'll be disappointed. If you're hoping to put your trust in justice and the good of the government or the good of the political system or the good of your leaders to get you out of your brokenness or you're trusting in some kind of a magic pool to get you out of your brokenness, you're always gonna be disappointed because there's a difference between community and justice and magic and Jesus, right? Those three things sit on one side of the column and Jesus sits on the other, the creator, the one who designed you, the one who built you once more for you. Jesus says, do you want to be well? I'm reminded of uh, Moses in Exodus, right? Remember when God comes to Moses? He's living in Midian. In Exodus 3 and 4, if you're not familiar, God comes to Moses and he says, hey, I want you to leave Midian where you got this great farm and you got a family, you got a comfortable life there, and I want you to go back to Egypt and rescue my people. And, and that should be a pretty exciting thing for God to declare, but Moses doesn't receive it as something exciting. What happens with Moses? He goes, well, you know, what if the people don't believe me? And what if they ask me who sent me? What am I going to tell them? And what if they ask me to perform a miracle? Like, I don't, I don't have any power. And finally, when God systematically answers all of those excuses, Moses goes, uh, well, I don't talk so good, right? He says, Lord, you know I've never been such, such a good, good talker, right? And God's response is epic. God looks at him and goes, hey, Moses, I built your face, Right? Right, Like when we were assembling the parts of your head, I'm the one who glued your tongue in, bro, and I know how you talk, and I'm still asking you to go to Egypt, right? What are we talking about here? Why? Because there's a difference between our excuses and the power of our creator to enable us to do the things he's created us for. 
The man says, well, nobody will take me down there, and people always get in line in front of me. And so look at what happens here in the third movement. The sick man said in verse seven, sorry, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Here's what I want you to see in this. There's a couple of things here. I want you to note that Jesus doesn't say, believe in me, and I'll heal your legs, and then you can get up and clean up your area. Jesus says, get up, take your bed, and walk. What the, 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 the call to obedience, the expectation of obedience, the take up your bed and walk, follows the miracle. The miracle already happened. The miracle is instantaneous. It's not a response to the man's faith. It's not a response to the man's belief. There may be some of you here tonight, or this morning, it's dark outside, so it feels like tonight. Um, there may be some of you here this morning who don't have a lick of belief in you. You're not sure about this, Jesus. You're not sure about the Bible. You're not sure about the whole church thing. Listen, God doesn't need you to believe in him for him to transform your life. And he looks at this man and he says, get up and take your bed. In that moment, the man is transformed. But do see that there is an expectation from the healer that obedience will follow the miracle, right? The miracle isn't predicated on the man's obedience, but the expectation of the healer is that that free, that free miracle will be followed by obedience, same thing is true for us. He looks at the man and he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. You know, uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this has become sort of a, just like a regular part of my life. I know those of you in the back probably can't see it, maybe on the screen. It's a, that's an asthma inhaler. I have asthma, and uh, I, have, I have about six of these. I keep one in my, uh, in my backpack. I have one in the glove compartment of my car. I've got one on my desk. I have one on my bedside table in my room, and uh, it's because I have asthma. I don't have to use it all the time, but I do, I mean, I've had asthma since I was 13, and I do have to use it occasionally. Like, if I'm in a place where there are cats, I have to use my inhaler. If I, uh, if I do a lot of physical exercise for a long period of time, my lungs don't work super great, and so I have to use this, and this does the trick. I gotta keep it close. And asthma, is a, is a, that's a part of my physical brokenness, right? Part of my physical brokenness is my lungs don't work the way they're supposed to. I have asthma. But I'll tell you, there's a part of me that kind of feels like if Jesus said to me this morning, hey, Darren, do you want me to take your asthma away? I, I might be inclined to go, you know what? Let me, just let me hold on to that, right? Because this has gotten me out of all kinds of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like people are moving and they go, uh, hey, you know, do you think you, you think you could come over? On Saturday morning and help us, we're going we're gonna to start at 6 a.m. on Saturday and we're going to be loading all the stuff that we own into a truck and then we're going to drive it to Pomona and unload it. We should be done by 1 a.m. or whatever. And I go, uh, oh, that sounds like something I would definitely want to do, <laughs> but I have asthma. I have asthma and so I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do it. Like I got out of all kinds of things in PE because I have asthma. Uh, I, I, you know, like you're, you're on a soccer team and the coach says, now you guys are going to run laps. And I'd be like, I probably shouldn't because this, I got <laughs> be really bad for us all if I, because of asthma, you know? And in some ways, my infirmity or my brokenness has become a vehicle for me to get what I want, Right? In some ways, my, my brokenness, it's funny, I was, uh, I was leading a discipleship group at Hume Lake and they decided they were gonna do a hike to Alta Peak. If you know Alta Peak, it's like 11,000 feet. And I'm like the leader of the group. They're like, we're gonna hike Alta Peak. And I was like, I hope you guys have a great time on that hike, you know? <laughs> and they're like, no, you have to go with us. We're gonna go to Alta Peak. It's gonna be amazing. We're gonna hike up there. And like, that's above the tree line. So at the top, it's just like all rocks and shale and skeletons. And so you don't wanna... <laughs> 
you don't want to hike up there. You know, it's like the dead bodies of climbers. I'm like, no. And I said, I don't think my doctor would let me go on that hike. You know, and they're like, you should ask your doctor. And I was like, Okay, because I was feeling pretty confident. So I go to my doctor in Fresno, and I was like, hey, the, the group's doing this hike up to Alta Peak, and they want me to go with them, but I told them I have asthma. And the doctor interrupted me. He goes, no, you should definitely go on that. And I was like, let me finish my story. <laughs> he goes, you should go. That would be really good for you. The best way to sort of expand your lung capacity is to use your lungs, dude. So don't use your asthma as an excuse. Like, go on the hike, you know? And he actually, like, wrote me, like, a, no- like a note of permission to go. I was so mad. I was so mad. Now, I did, uh, I did hike the mountain. I got all the way to the top. I will say this. It was beautiful, but it wasn't more beautiful than photos I'd seen of that very same place. Um, and I, I would have been fine to have just looked at somebody else's picture album, honestly. But it's interesting. Jesus says, get up, take your bed, and, and walk. And immediately his life is changed. His life is changed. God has transformed him And God does it in a very specific way. I mean, Jesus is going to find him in the temple in a second. That's even cool. A man who was invalid for 38 years would not have been allowed to worship in the temple for 38 years. And so he's healed, and almost immediately he makes his way to the temple, both to be cleared for temple worship, but also to offer thanksgivings, presumably, to be invited back into what was a very communal and social thing for the Jewish people. This guy's life is radically changed. God transforms him. He says, do you want to be well? The man says, well, I'm isolated and all this injustice is happening. Jesus says, take up your bed and go. And the man is healed. But look at what happens next. Come back with me to the text. In John chapter five, look at verse four, excuse me, verse nine. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Let me just say that that's not an accident, right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't heal this man on the Sabbath inadvertently. He doesn't forget. It's like he did forgot to look at his watch or whatever, his sundial. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath on purpose. Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath on purpose because as, as he's done on every page of our study of John, he's always looking past the temporal thing in front of him to the greater spiritual need that sits behind it. He's always looking past the temporal, the the man who needs to be healed or or the lady who needs water. He's always looking past that little temporal thing to the greater spiritual need and the greater spiritual need that he's addressing in this story and that he will continue to address in the next chapters of John. So there's a pivot in our study of John and it's worth noting. The first four chapters of John have really been about Jesus' interaction with people, his methods and motivation in healing them, right? As he begins his ministry, we get to John 5 and following and there's a pivot to start showing what John told us about in John 1. In John 1, he said that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. John's going to prove that irrefutably in the chapters that follow. John 5, there's a pivot and we start to see mounting opposition to the ministry of Jesus because he does strategic things like this. In our teaching team meeting this week, one of the leaders said, uh, when Jesus tells the man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath, it's like he's poking a bear on purpose, right? He pokes the bear here. He could have said, hey, you know what? You're healed. You can walk. Go home. Come back tomorrow for your mat. But he didn't. He said, take up the mat and walk. Why? Because he wanted to poke the bear. He wanted to point out the fact that what had happened with with the Jews in this particular case is that their adherence to Sabbath law had gotten way out of the scope of what God intended Sabbath law to be. 
that it had gone beyond modeling and sort of replicating what God modeled in creation when he rested on the seventh day. It had gone beyond that to all of these little sort of man-made rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do and had gotten completely away from the heart of God for that law in the first place. They had a Sabbath law, not, not a Levitical law, not something we find in the scriptures, but something that the Jewish people had added, the Jewish leaders had added, that said, in addition to not being able to do any labor on the Sabbath, you literally couldn't do anything that required physical exertion, including picking up a bed, right? So Jesus says to him, pick up your bed, and when he said it, the guy would have known what was happening. He says, pick up your bed and take it with you to provoke this response. Look at what happens he says, now that day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You hear their frustration? They're frustrated that there's somebody who told him he could take up his bed when they had made it very clear you weren't supposed to pick up a bed on the Sabbath. Now slow down for a second and notice here with me that what's happening in this particular case is that these Jewish leaders are so focused on the mat that they miss the miracle. They're so focused on the mat that they miss the miracle. And before you judge them and before you go, these idiots, they didn't know that this man who hadn't walked in 38 years was walking. Why weren't they high-fiving him? Why weren't they celebrating? Why weren't there hurrahs all around? Instead, they're focused on this stupid mat he's carrying. Before you look at them with eyes of judgment, let me tell you, we do this same thing every week around here. On a regular basis, we get so focused on our preferences, we get so focused on our minutia, we get so focused on the things, the way we think things should be done, or the way things have traditionally been done, or the way we've told other people they should be done, that we miss sometimes the greater movement of God because we're so focused on the mat. We see someone carrying a mat when we explicitly told people, don't carry any mats, and we miss the fact that this guy's legs didn't work five minutes ago. No, no, no. we want to be people who celebrate the miracle of God, the movement of God, and let, let the mats go as they will, Right? They say, who did this? He goes, I don't know. It's interesting, the man doesn't even know who healed him. It says Jesus had withdrawn. So he said, they say, uh, who did this? And it says in verse 13, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. That's interesting. He went to a place with a crowd. There were all these people looking to be healed, all these people with physical infirmities. He went to a place with a crowd, and then it says he withdrew because there was a crowd. Does that feel a little bit weird to you? What that tells us is that Jesus wasn't trying to build a reputation for himself as a guy who did the miraculous in big crowds of people. He wasn't doing an Oprah Winfrey here where he goes, and you've got legs, and you've got legs, and you've got legs, and you've got legs. Jesus wasn't trying to build a name for himself based on his ability to take the lame and make them walk again. He was trying to point them to the greater spiritual reality, and that's what we see in the fourth movement of this text. Afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is an interesting thing Jesus says, and, and there's a lot of sort of speculation about what it means. Some people look at this when Jesus finds the man in the temple and says, hey, your legs work, so stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Some have taken that and said, well, that, that implies that his illness or his infirmity was a result of his sin. But we'll see in John chapter nine that Jesus says, no, people aren't sick because of what they did wrong or what their parents did wrong. 
People are sick in that particular case to, to show and put on display the glory of God. In this case, I don't think Jesus is saying to him, hey, the reason your legs didn't work before is because you were a sinner, and if you sin again, they're gonna go back to the way they were. I think what Jesus is saying is something much greater and much more important. He looks at the man and he says, I fixed your legs, but I haven't done anything for your heart. Your legs are working now, and that's awesome. But if something doesn't change with your heart and your soul, with your motivation then something worse will happen. He's not talking about going back to infirmity. He's talking about something worse than having legs that don't work. He's talking about being separated from God for eternity. And so he says to the man, stop sinning, knowing full well that this man and this man and all of these folks are incapable of ceasing to sin, right? Jesus looks at the man and says, stop sinning, which the man cannot do. Why does he say that to him? Jesus knows he can't stop sinning. He says to the man, stop sinning, because what he wants to do is to stir in the man an awareness, an awakening of a much greater need he has than even the need he had that morning. The need he had that morning was for his legs to work. The need he has that afternoon, as Jesus opens his eyes to it, is for someone to rescue him from spiritual death, for someone to redeem him from his separation from God. He finds the man in the temple, it's beautiful, and he goes, hey, Stop sinning or something worse will happen. What's he doing? He's opening the man's eyes to a much greater spiritual need. Jesus has done this again and again. He's not just taking care of the man's legs. He's looking past the man's physical need to his spiritual and eternal need. And that same reality is here for us this morning. Some of you, maybe you, you come to church, you, you, you walk in a place like this because you recognize you've got a great physical need, because you recognize you've got a great relational need. And all you're hoping to receive from Christianity or maybe from Jesus is for your marriage to get better or for your flu to go away or for whatever. You've got these physical things. And sometimes Jesus does heal those. No, he doesn't heal everybody under the colonnades here. But what Jesus cares more about than just fixing the temporal thing that's right in front of us in this moment is our universal need for resurrection life. That Jesus has come to the earth and he's taken the sins of us all upon himself. That he died in our place and shed his blood to extend to us resurrection life. He walks out of the tomb and he goes, this life can be yours because you can't stop sinning. Because you can't stop breaking my law. Because you can't fix your spiritual brokenness on your own. Look to the cross. Jesus is preparing this man to recognize the bankruptcy of his own soul and then to look to the saving work of Jesus yet to come in this story. Now the man turns right around and goes to those who were looking for him later and he tells them it was Jesus. Jesus here is identified by his call to holiness. That's cool, right? That's the calling card. That the man figures out it's Jesus because of Jesus' call to holiness. And then the man goes to the Jewish leaders and says, the guy you were looking for earlier is Jesus. Now we're gonna finish here this morning. Some people have looked at that and they've said, well, this guy's kind of lame. Like he, he, Jesus heals him and then he rats Jesus out. I'm not sure that's what's happening here because I, I wonder if this isn't the man declaring the truth of what occurred. He finds out who it is and he turns around to these Jewish leaders and he goes, you were asking me questions earlier about the one who told me I could take up my mat on the Sabbath? Let me tell you, Jesus did this to me. This whole thing, Jesus did it. If that's the case, and I don't know, if he's not ratting Jesus out, but if he's testifying to the power and the ministry of Jesus, what a cool declaration. And I wonder in our own lives how often we take the opportunity to declare to those around us, Jesus did this to me. You're wondering how this happened. You're wondering how I have this hope. You're wondering how I have this peace. You're wondering why I can look at the world around me and rest in the knowledge that Jesus is in control. 
He did this to me. In fact, what we're going to celebrate at the end of our service this morning is very, it's that very thing. In baptism, we got people that are going to come and be baptized. What is baptism? It's solidarity with the death and resurrection of Christ, but it's also a public declaration in obedience to Jesus. They're going to get into this tank and they're going to declare to the rest of us, Jesus did this to me, right? This was Jesus who did it. What a great celebration. Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. He makes his way to these colonnades. He finds this man who'd been sick for 38 years and he restores him to physical health and he puts him on a path to spiritual health as well. I hope that each and every one of us would recognize this morning that that same grace, that that same power, that that same heart for the broken and the lost and the isolated and those to whom injustice have been done, that you would see that God sees you and he knows you and he is ready to work on your behalf, but not just for temporal transformation, that he would point you to eternal transformation that only happens through the death and resurrection of Christ and his bloodshed on our behalf.